Well, good morning. Y'all doing well? All right. So, hey, um, let me, have you ever received a great, generous, extravagant gift? I have. And some of you were the gift givers. Several years ago, um, if, if you know my history here, uh, 2002, I came on staff here, and I was the youth pastor for about seven and a half years. And around the six and a half year mark, I decided, uh, I, I laughed, my dog had died, I was single, I was falling asleep at the wheel in ministry a little bit, and I thought, it's time for someone else to take over this ministry, it's time for me to go get some further training. And so I uh, met with Mike Gentry in his office and said, hey, I'm going to uh, step out and go to seminary. And uh, in the course of that next few months, someone unbeknownst to me on staff, um, or someone unbeknownst to me who's a friend and on staff, went to all of our congregation and sent an email out and got the word out and asked, would you be interested in helping Zach with his seminary finances, with his expenses? And uh, on a week when I was about to leave, uh, I came up here and I stood right here on this stage and Brian Fisher said, on behalf of the congregation and from the donations of the congregation, we want to give you uh, a check for $14,000. And in my life, I have never felt so humbled, moved, thankful, dumbfounded. It was the most powerful moment of generosity that I had ever experienced. And as we continue our poured out series today, I want you to turn with me to Philippians 4.10, and you're going to see Paul in a response to a truly extravagantly generous gift from the believers in Philippi. Now let's catch up with where we are in the book. Um, We're at the end. Uh, Paul, if we remember, is at house arrest in Rome. Paul has had some incredible things to share with the Philippians. In chapter 1, he assures them that the gospel is advancing despite difficult circumstances and impure motives. In chapter 2, he encourages them that the, to be unified in the same humility and the others-centered action that Jesus Christ displayed. In chapter 3, he's going to remind us all, the Philippians, not to put any confidence in themselves or in the world, but to know and run after the person of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4, he urges them to live in peace and experience peace with others and within themselves. And as he closes this letter, he's essentially going to, going to share a passion-filled thank you to the Philippians for a financial gift that they've brought him. Paul, being a Roman prisoner, remember, he was under house arrest, and so he couldn't have a job, but he was responsible for all of his lodging, all of his food, all of his sustenance. And he was at the complete mercy of other people. And the Philippians came through in a big way. They sent a big gift. They had sent gifts before, but they sent a big gift through Epaphroditus, And Paul's going to do a few things here. He's going to do a few things that I should have done. He's going to thank them for their continued support. He's going to approve them of that. He's going to assure them of his own confidence and trust in the Lord. And he's going to affirm their generosity to him. And I want to give you an illustration. Uh, What we see Paul do would be very much like this. Imagine... If someone from this church who had been a part of this church moves away, 
I'm going to give Jerry and Suzanne. Jerry and Suzanne are about to head off to England and be on staff with crew. They've been a part of this church for a long time. And let's say they move off and they're going to be in England. And we decide that because we hear of a financial need or a significant need that they have, that we're going to get together, pool some resources and send that to them and help them out. And we do that, and they send back a letter to us. And this is what the letter might say. Dear Grace Bible Church, I thank God for you and how he is using you in my life. Thank you for thinking of me. I want you to know that even if you weren't able to do what you did, I have learned how to trust God with my circumstances and trust him completely. But you have partnered with me. Now and before, and that has been a huge blessing to me. And as you have blessed me with your generosity, I know that God is pleased with you. He will bless you. He will reward you. And the gospel will go forward because of you. That is essentially what Paul is going to say in these last few verses of the book of Philippians. And so I want to read this with you. Let's look at this and read it together, and then we're going to look a little deeper. Philippians 4, 10 through 23. Listen to what Paul says. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want, mind you, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, That at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Christ be with your spirit. So let's look at this a little bit more detail. The first section, the first phrase that we're going to get, you're going to see this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And I want to draw something out here. He says, I rejoice in the Lord. Notice that's key because Paul is acknowledging that ultimately this is the Lord working through the Philippians. This is the Lord's provision to meet his needs. God's provision, though, comes through his people, but it's the Lord who is working. So he is rejoicing in the Lord. But this second phrase, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. I love this idea. This word revived is the idea. It's like a dormant tree that then blossoms, kind of like that. 
bare branches, and then all of a sudden it is alive again. It is blossoming. He's basically saying, you have bloomed afresh to think of me. Now here's the deal. It's not that they weren't concerned with Paul already, but they, as he says, they lacked opportunity. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And, and honestly, we don't know if they just didn't have the resources at the time or they didn't have the ability to get the resources to him. But look at, think about for a second with me, the effort that was made. Think about where Paul was. Paul is in Rome. They're in Philippi. That's, there's a, that's 600 miles as the bird flies, and you got the Adriatic Sea in between. So it wasn't, it's a lot further than that. You couldn't just hop online and forward a payment by transferring money. So there's some effort involved here to get this money to him. It might be one of the reasons why he hasn't heard from them in a while, because of the distance and the way that they couldn't just Skype him or FaceTime him or call him. Think about the sacrifices that they made. They were able to amply supply him. This is not a small gift, which means if they gave this much, they had to do without. As much as they gave means that's as much as they now didn't have access to. So they took time and effort and gave of themselves to Paul, though he was hundreds of miles away. And for many of us, I want you to think about something. A lot of life is out of sight, out of mind, isn't it? I remember when I did move to Dallas, I had a ton of great and what I would consider deep, significant relationships here. But when I got up there, not many people called. There were, there were very few phone calls. There was very few. I mean, I got a $14,000 gift and it was like, see, a, we love you. And not a lot of people reached out or checked on me. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't take it personally at all. I just went... People are busy because isn't that how life is? Okay? We just live in such a busyness and a fast pace that we can barely keep up with what's right in front of us. I see friendships in here that I'm like, I haven't talked to in a month. And I'm like, I I should have talked to him last week. That's how life goes for us. And I, I just would like for us to think about something. Over the holidays, I want to give you an application right off the bat. I would ask us to do this. Let's ask God to bring to mind those who are near or far that God might lead us to reach out to and bless. And then that God might give us the resolve to do it. They revived their concern for Paul. Let us ask God to maybe bloom afresh in us. Someone, maybe someone who you don't know yet. They cross your path. Maybe it's someone you know that you need to reach out to. But as we enter the holidays, let's not speed up. Let's slow down a little bit and ask God to do that for us. Okay? So that's how he starts this section. He affirms their continued support. You have revived your concern with me. Now, this next section, he's going to talk about his confidence in God. And, and I, this is kind of a, a side that Paul's going to insert in here. It's, it almost sounds apologetic as he starts it off. Listen to what he's going to say. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And, and I think there's three things going on in this section. As he says, now wait a minute, not that I speak from want. I, I, I'm glad you gave me the gift, but not that I speak from want. First of all, it's a clarifying remark. It's not that he is thankful 
and relieved out of desperation. Oh my gosh, it was so horrible and so difficult and my circumstances are so dire. Oh, you finally gave me a gift. That's not what he's saying. It's not that he speaks for more. It's not that he's thankful. Paul's joy is not because of the gift, but because of the Philippians and their partnership with him. Okay. Second, it's a living ethic. I think Paul... This isn't just about this one circumstance of where he was at house arrest. I think this is a a lesson that Paul lived by, an ethic and a mindset he lived by of contentment that Paul surely lived in this same mindset regarding relationships, possessions, opportunities, abilities, tribulations, on and on and on. But he stops to say, my confidence is in God. And then the last thing I would say, it's a freeing statement. It's a freeing statement for the Philippians. Because Paul is saying that your gift is well-received. I am so thankful for your gift. But my well-being is not on your shoulders or it's your burden to carry. I trust in God and God will sustain me. Thank you for this. But God's got my back. Does that make sense? So he gives this aside. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about contentment. And he's going to give us a couple of principles about contentment. And I want to draw those out for you if you'll look at it with me. Here's some principles of contentment. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. And the first one is this, that true contentment is not determined or achieved by circumstances or possessions. Look at what he says. I know how to get along with humble means and also with prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of having an abundance and suffering need. He, he lists all these negative things, hungry, having need, lacking. And then he lists all these positive things, being filled, having an abundance, being amply supplied, all of these things. He gives the widest range of circumstances and says, I've learned to be content in all of these. So if you can be content in all of these, if, if contentment can be found anywhere throughout all of this, then these things don't determine contentment. A lot of times we think the more I have, the more content I'll be. But it's not true. You have to be content when you have little and there is a lesson to be content when you have much. And that's what he's saying. And there is a lie that the culture says, and I think we're all aware of this lie, that it tries to present, especially with marketing and advertising around the Christmas time, that contentment can come through something else, that it can come through stuff. Christmas is the greatest time to have contentment with stuff, isn't it? But why things never truly satisfy, do they? They get lost, they break, they rot, and even if they don't, aren't we just gluttons for the updates and the new things? We are. Even if it's completely fine and perfect, the newness, the shininess, we want it. But it never brings contentment. The other one is relationships. Do you, can, I, can I give you a bit of a wisdom? No one can live up to your expectations, your hopes and dreams. Can I, can I tell you this? Everyone will let you down. Can I tell you that? Humanly speaking. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will let you down. Your friends will let you down. No one can you put up high enough that they can match that? Contentment is not found in relationships. They can't, people can't even hold up to God's own standard, right? <laughs> so they're not going to they're, they're let you down. 
and the last one I would say is financial security. We think that financial security can bring contentment, but it can't. Even having an abundance, it can't. And, and ultimately what financial security does, it controls us rather than serve us. I, I shared with you guys that I got that, that gift. Well, I also, $14,000 didn't cover everything, okay? So when I was up there, I got, in a, I got in a relationship with my wife. We dated for a year, got engaged, and we got a wedding coming, and now I got to support my wife, and I'm a college, I'm a, I'm a, I'm back, I'm a grad student living in a garage apartment. So I had a house down here that I got very cheaply because it was willed to a um, church from a veterinary professor, and so they were going to make money off it, so they sold it to my family, my brother and my, my parents, when we were in 1995 in college, right off Northgate. So we bought it for a pretty cheap price, and then when my brother moved out after vet school, he left, and I was still here working, and so I bought it from them, and I, I got it, I mean, very cheap. And so by the time I got ready to go up there, I got tired of being a, man, a manager of a property down here. I needed more money at the time, and so I thought, I'm going to sell the house. And so I sold it. And I made $70,000 of profit on that house. That's pretty good. Stuck it in a savings account. Guess what my idol became? That savings account. I went from trusting in God, which I had done for years, to all of a sudden I'm protecting this because this is now what's going to take care of me. Prosperity has done more harm to believers than adversity. Let that sink in. Prosperity has done more harm to believers than adversity. Financial security will not make you content. It is not based on possessions or circumstances, okay? But what does it? It has to come from God. And that's verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can't muster up contentment. It must come from God. And let me say this. This verse, misunderstood, misapplied by many, it's not going to win you football championships, okay? Just want to tell you. Beautiful idea, but it's not what the context is, okay? Here's the thing. When it says, I can do all things, it doesn't, you can't do everything. You, let me just, you can't do or be anything you want to be or do. I can't fly. I want to fly. I can't be the next Aggie linebacker. I wanted to be, look at me. Those guys would blow on me and I would fall down, Okay? So I can't be or do whatever I want to do. It's, that's not what the verse is saying. If you go into the Greek, what it says is this. In all things, I am able or strong enough by the one who strengthens me. And the natural question would be to do what? The content, context, to be content. So what he's really saying is this. I have the strength to find contentment in any circumstance through God who strengthens me. If we have to be strengthened then... By God, if, if, if this has to come from God, then the default is discontentment. And I want to ask you, where does discontentment come from? This is a whole sermon, but we're going to sum it up in this. The house of discontentment has many walls, but the foundation of discontentment is a lack of trust in God's goodness and provision. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That's what God sent in this message to begin with. Adam and Eve were told a to lie that God is holding something back. You will be like God, they were told. And Adam and Eve had all of this provision. They were rich, abundant in provision. And the one thing that they couldn't have, he lied, Satan lied to them and he, he, he preyed on their discontentment. 
that you're missing out on something. And when we believe that God is not able or willing to give us what we want, we undercut trust. He doesn't undercut our trust. We undercut our trust in Him. And the problem is that we often confuse our wants and our needs, our timing, His timing, what's good for us, and what's not. God is not failing us. Our thinking and perspective is what fails us. And discontentment ends up leading to all types of sin. And just to name a few, discontentment, if you allow discontentment to step into your life, it will lead you to envy, potentially covetousness, grumbling, rebellion, self-determination, divorce, adultery, and idolatry. It is a gateway into many other things. And the answer is to learn to trust in God. I jumped the gun. The answer is to learn to trust in God with open hands. Philippians 3, that's why Paul says in Philippians 3, more than that, I count all of these things loss in view of so their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul was content because he was spiritually rich in union with Christ who is all-sufficient. I think of John 10 when John, when John is recording Jesus' words where he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I've thought about that over the years. What does it mean to have an abundant life? And just real quickly, I think when we are completely satisfied in Christ and we find our identity completely in him and we are filled, then every other good thing in my life is just abundance. It's overflow. If I'm completely filled up by Christ, then when I look at my wife, and instead of putting her, my filling on her and going, it's up to you to make me feel good about myself or to meet my needs or my thoughts or whatever it may be, she's going to let me down and I'm going to be empty. But when I let Christ be the one who fills me up completely, then it's not that she ends up creating a deficit in me. Any good thing she brings is overflow. And I receive that rather than putting the weight and burden on her. Contentment is a freedom to the people around us. You follow me on that? It has to come from God. But it must be learned. And Paul says in a couple times, I've learned to be content. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. He had to step into the mystery. And it came through experience. It takes time, and over time, we gain again the right perspective of who God is. That's how trust is developed. Trust doesn't happen as someone walks up to you and goes, just trust me. You go, I don't trust you. Trust happens over time. And so with God, as we put Christ the center of our life time and time again, as we believe that God really knows our needs and will meet them, and we watch for that, and we have his mind, not our mind, We trust him with that and we watch him provide and meet us our needs. We learn to trust him over time and we learn to be content. And I'm going to give you an application from this. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you over the next few weeks, over this week's weeks, search yourself for discontentment because I, I got a strong feeling we all struggle with discontentment in some area. Where are you discontent? And I want you to do this. Discuss it with someone who is honest with you and who will speak honestly with you and then together Ask God to strengthen you in that. To help you do have the strength to be content in all circumstances. Okay?
This last section, Paul is going to talk about and affirm their generosity. And he's going to name about five great principles, great nuggets of generosity that I just want to highlight for you as we continue through this passage. Watch what happens here. The first thing that he's going to say is that generosity blesses others. Watch this. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And he goes on to say, you've given me gifts. You've, you've, you've partnered with me. But he says, you have done well. You have taken part with me. You have connected with me in my affliction. Paul felt taken care of, and encouraged by them. He was blessed because of what they've done. That's part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. When one leg doesn't work, I got another leg to stand on. When this hand doesn't work, I got another hand to use. We're the body of Christ. And each one of us play a role and we support one another. That's one of the reasons that we labor is to have the ability to share with others. Ephesians 4.28 tells us, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who is in need. The very fact that we have jobs and and have that is so that we can provide for ourselves, but to share with others. That's part of being the body of Christ. Second, he says is this, that generosity blesses others ourselves. It blesses us. Look at what he says. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. When we give as God leads us, he blesses us now and in eternity. Think about the now. When we are giving, okay, when we are generous to others, Here's what happens. It aligns us with God's character, heart, and purposes. It it frees us. A, A cheerful giver tempers away sin and strangles out idolatry because when we are cheerfully giving, we're not holding or hoarding. This thing that could be an idol in our life, we're we're cheerfully giving. We're doing it in a heart that is excited about doing that. And when we give it actually tempers sin that could grab us. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So if we're not loving money because we're freely able to give it, it tempers us away from sin and strangles idolatry. Acts 20.35, Paul, speaking to the elders at Ephesus, says, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in the manner you must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there's blessing now, but there's also blessing forever. When we are giving and we invest into God's purposes and God's people, we bring a reward that we will, we will receive later. And, and I think you see this in Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents. Remember, the master gathers his servants and he gives them some talents, a certain amount. And he says, take this and, and use this. And, and one of the ones with five talents takes it and invests it. And he doesn't invest it for himself. He invests it for his master. And as he does that, the master comes back and says, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things, enter into the joy of your master. We will receive honor 
Well done and good and faithful servant. We will receive opportunity in the kingdom to come, faithful with a little, and I will put you in charge of much. That is a thrust towards future reward. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, Now this I say, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That's what God's heart for us is, is that we would sow bountifully while we're on this earth, that we might reap bountifully when we are with him for eternity. This short time has such a great impact on what our future is. Holds And our future isn't tomorrow. Our future is eternity with Jesus for those who believe in him. He also says that generosity is worship. Look with me what he says next. He says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. It is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to our God. Worship is is giving worth, priority, importance, or weightiness to something. And when we give out of sacrifice to God's purposes or God's people, as he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What we spend our money on or save our money for reveals our heart. And when we are generously giving, it is an act of worship. In the Old Testament, one of the ways people worshipped was through sacrifice, literal sacrifice. Whether an animal out of their stock or um, a parts of their crop. And it was sacrificial. Um, there's a great example of, of King David in 2 Samuel 24 where he is going to worship the Lord. And a man, a very generous man, says, I will give you freely the oxen to worship the Lord by. And, and King David stops, and he, and he turns him down, and he says, I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord, my God, which costs me nothing. And so it is sacrifice. And when we sacrifice like that, this sacrifice, and, and I want to I say, I don't think God just loves the smell of barbecue. Okay? It's not the smell of the burnt offering literally going up. It's what's behind the burnt offering. It's the, the humility, the alignment of the heart of the person who offered it that goes up as a sweet aroma, a, a, a pleasing sacrifice to God. And so generosity is one of those moments where we sacrifice. We bless others, we bless ourselves, and we worship a great God in the way we give. Next thing Paul is going to say is that generosity is accounted for by God. And, and I'm, going to stretch, I'm stretched on this one, but listen to this. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I love this. You have given to me, you have sacrificed, you've met my needs, and I'm confident that my God will supply your needs. Because you've just created more need by sharing and giving for my need, now you might have a need, and I'm convinced God's going to meet your need because you met my need. Now here's where I want to stretch this. Now remember, this is needs, not desires. This is needs, not wants. But here's what I want you to think about. When we sacrificially give, we are practically demonstrating trust in God. I have this, this could benefit me, but I'm going to sacrificially give, and as I sacrificially give, now I'm doing without 
And so as I trust God through this sacrifice, I'm going to have to trust him now. So as we give, we are in fact trusting God. Trusting God that those will be used for God's purposes, but also trusting out of the sacrifice now that we have. And when we are trusting him, we're living in trust. And when we live in trust, I believe he meets our needs. Meets our needs. Not in our ways, but his ways. And I want to give you an example of that for me. Um, because it's not in the way that you would determine or expect. It, it has to come from his, his perspective. So let me give you an example. I, I shared this. I got this $14,000 gift, right? Well, before I got that, I'm thinking, how am I going to pay for seminary? And here's why I'm thinking about that. Because I was on staff here for seven and a half years. <clears throat> and I had a salary. And guess what my savings account was? Okay, but let me tell you why, and I, and I mean this in a humble way. I didn't worry about money at that time in my life. I was single. I didn't have kids. I didn't, it's a much different ballgame when you got family and kids to pay for and all that stuff. But I was a single guy, and I gave so much more of my salary. I used my salary as an extension of my ministry budget. Okay, that's what I did. And I gave so much of it back to this church. I never asked for it back. I, I just I used it for ministry. And I looked back over, now I bought things for myself, but I didn't travel. I didn't do a lot of stuff. I, I, I honestly put a lot of money and I looked at it and I thought if I would have just kept all that money for myself, I'd have $50,000 in my bank account right now. Now, God, God didn't give me a $50,000 check from this congregation to repay me back for all that I did, did he? That's not what happened. But here's the deal. As I gave sacrificially, when I did have a need, I got a gift that was unexpected from me. I had a connection with someone who got Jerry Varghese and I a free place to stay while we were in seminary. Free. How much money did we save living in Dallas near downtown for free? I had a friend of mine in this congregation come to me and say, how much more do you owe on your truck? I'm going to pay it off for you. It, as I sacrificed, God met me when I had need. And it was over and abundant because I was living in a place of trust. And I believe that God, when we live in a place of trust, by his strength, he blesses us and he provides our needs. He accounts for us and he knows. And I think Paul is saying as you give generously, God sees that, knows that, and he will meet you in your need. Trust him. So generosity comes in that way. Now, before I hit this last point, I want to ask, because we're going to do communion in a minute. If you are helping serve communion, would you head on back as we finish this last point? And here it is, is that generosity advances the gospel. Paul is going to say in this last section, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Ministry was happening even under house arrest as the Praetorian Guard, as people were coming to know Christ in Caesar's household. And now they are saying thank you to the Philippians. Because as we have seen the body of Christ support you and because you were supported in the ministry you were able to do, the gospel moved forward and lives were transformed 
Because of it, God uses his people, their gifts and their resources to make his name known and to make his name great. Even Jesus's ministry was funded and Jesus kind of changed the world, didn't he? Listen to this in Luke 8. It says, Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, and from whom seven demons had been gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Even Jesus, his ministry that changed the world, that changed our lives forever was funded because people gave generously. And when we give generously, the gospel advances. It's one of the results of giving that lives are eternally changed because that's what God is in the business of doing. He's changing us. And he's changing the world through us. And giving is a great way. Generosity is a great way that God sees that done. And I'll just give you a quick update. I know that you know we've done an Every Knee initiative. And I just want to share with you, the whole purpose of that is to see the gospel advance. Here, in this country, in the world. And so far since June, just to give you an update, $4.6 million have been given from this, this congregation. Here, Southwood and Creekside, what a blessing. And, and man, let us pray that God will use that to advance his kingdom, that people will be blessed here, that people will be blessed there, that we will be blessed and challenged in the process, that God will be worshiped, that God would meet our needs as we sacrificially give and that the kingdom would go forward. And so I want to finish this morning by reminding you, I want to, those three applications, I want to give you this. Last application is this, is do you give? If you are not giving, I want you to go before the Lord and wrestle with this because generosity is something God has called us to. And if you are, I want you to ask you, continue to align your heart with it. There are lots of reasons that people give. Let's make sure we're giving completely and rightly as we give. Don't just give on autopilot. Continue to lift that up before the Lord. So those three things I ask you to do. Ask God to bring someone to your mind this week. Take some time to honestly deal with discontentment and live in generosity. And if there is any time to celebrate generosity, it is this season. And as we think about the great generosity that we have the opportunity to give, we think about the great generosity that God has given us, and we remember that through communion. So I want to ask if you guys would come on forward, and we're going to pass out the elements, and we're going to remember the generosity of Jesus, that he gave a sacrifice, that he gave out of himself a life lived in perfect sinlessness, and a death given out of complete selflessness. Would you, as you receive the elements, take a moment and pray and ask God to search your hearts, to show you where you might have discontentment now, 
to build in you a gratitude and a thankfulness that is full of peace and joy. As we remember what Christ did on the cross for us. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me when you take the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, you are a God who has demonstrated an ample supplying, a overabundant generosity, and that while we were dead in our trespasses, when we were enemies of yours, you initiated toward us, you came to where we were in our brokenness, in our rebellion, and you said, I will pursue them. And you manifested that by taking on human flesh, by becoming a baby that we celebrate, that first advent. And you lived a life that was perfect so that you might be the perfect sacrifice to take any condemnation, any judgment that we deserve upon yourself. And then that great act on the cross, Lord, it says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And and you took all the wrath that sin deserves upon yourself. But it didn't end there. Three days later, you rose again, conquering death and sin. And you offer to us this gift, this generous gift of life that lasts forever. And when we believe you put your spirit within us to amply supply us to live a life for you. And I pray, Father, that for those of us who know that, we would would walk in it. We would run toward you. For those of us who are sitting in here today who might not know that or have believed that, I pray that we would believe that truth because you tell us it is by faith we are saved through your grace. We simply receive this great gift that you gave just like Paul did from, from the Philippians through Epaphroditus. Lord, let us be as gracious a recipient as Paul was of the gift that you've given us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.